Today is the 21st of June 2016, winter solstice, shortest day of the year. And tonight we're going to um, take up the subject of koan practice. Uh, with last a number of Tay shows, we've been um, talking about the precepts. We're doing this in the, in the lead up to our, our Matariki Chukai which was just a little over a week ago and um, this, this aspect of, of practice, shila or virtue is, is one of the legs of the, the, of the dharma stool you could say and the other two are samadhi and prajna um, absorption and wisdom these are the other two legs and so we're going to switch now to uh, more of a focus on these two. Um, Shila is really the foundation on which we build these other two. But um, tonight we'll look at these, especially as they are um, found in koan, koan practice. Um, some people here have, have just started um, working on a koan and so it can be very helpful to look over, review basics um, when one starts out. But equally, if, if you're an old hand, um, a review of the basics can also be really helpful. They, it can help to refresh our, our approach to the koan. And it's very likely that having done a lot of work already, um, you may hear an instruction in a new way where you may have heard it many times before um, but you, because of your own work you may hear it differently and that can also be really helpful. We're going to um, focus mainly um, on an article um, by Martine Batchelor and continuing our, our um, our focus on women teachers and masters. I'm going to use this article as a jumping off point um, and also draw on some other, other texts. The main other one we're going to look at is um, some passages from a, a really fine book on koan practice called Shattering the Great Doubt by the, the great Chinese Chan master Xing uh, Yin. But just a little bit first about um, Martine Batchelor before we um, have a look at this article. This came from Tricycle a few years ago, 2008. And some of you, I, I've copied this article because it's, it's a very good introduction to working on the koan, what is this? But anyhow, Martine Batchelor um, it was born in 1953. She's still alive. She, she was born in France and she spent uh, 10 years um, as a, a nun in um, the Chogye order in Korea and she worked closely with um, great modern uh, son master Kusan Sunim and she uh, during that time she, she became his translator, travelled with him as he taught in many different places and also uh, translated his book, a um, wonderful book called The Way of Korean Zen, really a classic of uh, Western Zen literature. And since then she's written many other books. All of the, all of the ones that I have, have read have, 
have been very valuable. Um, one little book she has done is called The Principles of Zen and it's one of the best um, uh, sort of overviews of the Zen tradition that, that there is around there with um, uh, the three pillars. Um, she, she now, uh, after, after being part of a community in England for quite a few years with her uh, husband, Stephen Batchelor, um, she's now back living in France. I think still writing and producing books. So just turning to um, her article um, titled, What is This? In 6th century China, the Buddhist schools were quite scholastic and focused on the scriptures. To move away from this academic direction and toward the Buddha's original teaching of practicing meditation and realizing awakening in this very life, the Zen school developed its koan practice in which stories of monks' awakenings became a starting point for meditative inquiry. By asking and focusing on a single question as a meditative method, Zen practitioners aimed to develop a rich experiential wisdom. And this, this um, emphasis on, on direct experiences is the key to koan work. And wanting to go beyond one's, one's uh, intellectual understanding of the teaching to, to something that really is active in our lives, which... which um, transforms our lives. So the koans, um, you could see them as being illustrations of, of the teachings, but they're much more than that because they, they offer us a way to, to actually embody the teaching. In the Korean tradition, one generally meditates on the koan, what is this? This question de derives from an encounter between the sixth patriarch, Huai Nung, and a young monk, Huai Dang, who became one of his foremost disciples. And this Huai Dang, um, his full name is Nanyue Huai Rang, and his dates are 677 to 744. And then she gives an account of the story out of which this this koan, what is this, emerges. Huai Zhang entered the room and bowed to Huai Neng. Huai Neng asked, Where do you come from? I come from Mount Song, replied Huai Zhang. What is this and how did it get here? demanded Huai Neng. Huai Zhang could not answer and remained speechless. He practiced for many years until he understood. In another account it says um, he, he worked on this question for eight years. He went to see Hui Nung to tell him about his breakthrough. Hui Nung asked, What is this? Hui Zhang replied, To say it is like something is not to the point, but still it can be cultivated. In another translation, um, 
this is rendered, to say it as a thing misses the mark. So this whole story uh, can be considered the koan, and then the question itself, uh, what is this, is the, is the, you could say it's the, it's the core of the koan, it's the essence of it. And um, this, this uh, the central point or the nub, and in Korean this is called the huadu, and in Chinese the huado. And in Korea they tend to talk about um, huadu zen rather than, than koan zen as the practice. It's, it's, a, it's important to understand um, what is meant by, by Huado and what it is we're, we're, how to work with this. And um, there's a little bit more about this in um, Master Sheng Yin's text. Here's what Sheng Yin says. The Huado method is closely connected to the gongan. The Japanese pronunciation of this term is koan, which means public case, as in a legal case or events in the judicial system in pre-modern China. So when we say a case, it's like, it's like a little bit like in medicine where you talk about um, a case study. It's an example of, um, in this case of medicine, of a... Of a how an illness might unfold, or in this case, it's a it's like a precedent, an example. This is the way um, that that um, koan or gungan is used. In in Chan, a gungan is an episode or a case in the life of a Chan master an episode that often bears directly upon the enlightenment of that master. Later, many gongangs became subjects for practice or investigation by Chan practitioners. In actual practice, the entire gongang is not always used because it can be complex and lengthy. Therefore, the early Chan masters would extract the essential point or the critical phrase or word from the gongang and use it as a tool for practice. So in the example of, of, of the koan that many people take up first, Mu, the case is the whole story of the monk coming to see Master Joshu um, and asking, does even the dog have the Buddha nature? And Master Joshu replies, Mu, or if, if we go to the Chinese, Wu. So that's the case. But when we work on it, we just boil it all down to what is mu, or just mu all by itself. He continues, literally, huato means head or crux of a saying. A great modern Chinese master, Shu Yun, explains a huado as that which occurs just before a thought arises in your mind. To practice huado, the practitioner recites the sentence or fragment in a questioning manner, but without theorizing or analyzing in order to find an answer. If you tried to reason out the meaning of a huado, this would be looking at the tail end of the thought, not the head. 
In theory, to investigate the huado means to examine that which occurs before th- thoughts arise. But what is that which lies before thoughts arise? What does the huado point to? Our original liberated mind. This is also called the Buddha mind. To conceptually understand this is not enough. Certainly, it has no bearing on our vexations and life problems. You have to personally experience this. In practice, you must abandon concepts, knowledge and previous experience until the huado becomes the only thing in your mind and you must eventually smash through the huado itself. So this is a very, it's a very helpful explanation of what we're talking about when we talk about the nub of the koan or the head. You can, you can um, think of a, of a snake and um, if the snake is threatening you, if you cut the snake's tail off, it can still bite you. Its, its vital centre has not been affected. But if you cut the snake's head off, then uh, you've, you've killed it. You've, you've um, got it at, right at its, its, um, where the life comes from. And in a sense, when you're talking about the head here, you're talking about that, the, about the, about the, the core, the, the essential part. Martin Batchelor continues, The practice is very simple. Whether you are walking, standing, sitting or lying down, you ask repeatedly, What is this? What is this? You have to be careful not to slip into intellectual inquiry, for you are not looking for an intellectual answer. You are turning the light of inquiry back onto yourself and your whole experience in this moment. You're not asking what is this thought, sound, sensation or external object. If you need to put it in a meaningful context, you are asking what is it that is hearing, feeling, thinking? You're not asking what is the taste of the tea or the tea itself. You're asking what is it that tastes the tea? What is it before you even taste the tea? So it's a very profound questioning, a, a, a questioning that goes deep. Master Sheng Yin again here. To practice Chan is to know oneself. And knowing oneself, will we, one will be able to ultimately liberate oneself. But knowing the self is difficult. Having control of the self is more difficult and liberating the self even more difficult. Yet it must be done because all ignorance and afflictions arise from not knowing who we are. All ignorance and afflictions arise from not knowing who we are. And this is where the the motivation comes from. 
for koan work. The desire to know who we are, who and what we are. Not only to know it, but to be able to then live out of that knowledge. To be fully human, fully who we are. Lacking control of ourselves, we have vexations. This is um, a term that, that Master Shingyan uses many, many times. Um, really, he's talking about all of our afflictions, our defilements, our troubles. Lacking control of ourselves, we have vexations, we have self-grasping and we are thus in bondage to the self. The purpose of practice is to liberate ourselves from this bondage. Purpose of the practice is to liberate ourselves from this bondage. A little bit later in the text, Master Sheng Yen goes on to, to set out some um, basic step-by-step instructions. He says it's not necessary to sit in the full lotus or even the half lotus to um, take up a koan. What is important is that um, we're in a posture that's that's stable and that's comfortable for for us and in, in which we can sit up straight. If we're sitting upright and we're, and our body is reasonably well aligned, then we'll be able to relax the body, and this is really important. He says, relax the body and be aware of your breath going in and out. Through awareness of your breath, you will know and experience your own existence. You exist because of your breath, and you will have that so long as you are alive. So stay with the awareness of your breath. Doing this, you gain a sense of your own being. As you continue, your breath will slow down, become deeper, and sink lower. At that time, you may become aware of the rise and fall of your abdomen. Let that process happen naturally. Be aware of it, but don't think about it. Practicing like this, you will gain in concentration and steadiness, and you may feel comfortable. Stay stay close to the awareness of your sense of self. If you do that, after some time, you will be able to use the Huato method. To relax your body... First, relax your eyes, your facial muscles and your head. Then make sure your shoulders and arms are relaxed, then your chest, back and lower back. While maintaining an erect posture, be sure your lower abdomen is also relaxed. If you can maintain these basic points of a relaxed body, your breath will be smooth and unhindered. However, if any part of your body is tense, your breath will be short and constricted. Of course, all of this also applies to to doing breath practice in itself, on its own. 
If you relax your body in the manner I just said, your breath will naturally be smooth and unhindered. You will experience the rise and fall of your abdomen and the breath will naturally sink down. So relax the body and be aware of your sense of self from one moment to the next. You do this by paying attention to the breath. If you catch your mind wandering, come back to your breath. Detach from the environment. Pay no attention to it. If you get involved in things heard and seen, you will be overwhelmed by wandering thoughts. Just stay with your experience of this very moment, moment to moment, one instant to the next. And what is, uh, and what is this present experience? It is your sense of self grounded in awareness of the body or mind. It can be very helpful when you first sit down just to come into the body, to um, experience the breath coming in and out. And this sort of anchors us and um, gets us grounded and then we can pick up the koan. When he says detach from the environment, what he really means is just not to latch onto things that come up that we experience. It doesn't mean that we um, block everything out but just allow um, sensations to recede and bring, bring the breath and, or the koan into the centre of one's attention. practice Huado, you repeatedly ask in your mind a single question with an urgent desire for an answer but without relying on thinking. What kind of question? Questions such as what is Wu or Mu? Who is dragging this corpse around? What is my original face before I was born? These are examples of, of questions that are taken up um, as a, as a preliminary koan. Uh, here we, we mainly um, recommend either mu or what is this. Um, sometimes people also um, are attracted to who am I? But really this is a variant on, on what am I? What is this? which is broader and that's why we, we recommend that. Ask the Huado to the exclusion of all other thoughts until the question is resolved. The crucial point is that the question cannot be resolved by logical or conceptual thinking. After you have chosen or have been assigned a Huado, you should just stick with it. Constantly switching your Huado makes it difficult to generate consistent power. In fact, you can practice the same Huado all your life, even after you have experienced an initial enlightenment. You can use the Huado to experience enlightenment again and again until you are thoroughly enlightened. And then he goes on to, to say that he recommends um, Wu. What is Wu? Our Mu. When you start to sit in meditation, you can directly enter the practice by energetically asking your question over and over. 
For example, in your mind you would ask, what is Wu? What is Wu? What is Wu? You must direct the asking to the Huado and not to yourself. Continue at a moderate pace and always ask with a questioning mind. Let your mind settle into the method. Become friends with it. When there is nothing in your mind but finding the answer, this is called investigating Huado. This is how Huado should be practiced. A couple of really, really important points here. Very helpful. You must direct the asking to the Huado, not to yourself. In other words, to completely focus on the question itself. Get so absorbed in the question that you forget about yourself. The other point he makes here is to continue at a moderate pace. It's, it's easy to get um, um, tight and narrow in, in our focus on the, on the uh, koan. But the, the, the essential thing in koan work is um, perplexity, which is, is, its nature is a kind of openness, a sort of wonder. Martine Batchelor goes into this. We'll get back to her text in a moment. Mr. Shingyan continues. When you engage the Huato, avoid analysing it. The proper approach is just to ask the question and let the Huato itself give the answer. With this attitude, you just keep asking the Huato. Do not turn around and start asking yourself, expecting the answer to come from you. That will start you thinking and you may end up with a stuffy head. If you can direct the question to yourself, you, if you direct the question to yourself, you may get answers from your subconscious, but they will invariably be wrong because they will be conceptual. If this happens, just let these false answers go. Say to yourself, this is not the answer I'm looking for and continue to ask the Huado. It, you may find it's kind of necessary to exhaust these conceptual responses. Um, Martine Batchelor mentions her, um, her teacher, Master Kusan, uh, used to try and sort of head his students off at the pass by, by pointing out to them all the things that, that the um, the question and answer were not. He used to say um, that the answer to the question is not an object because you can't describe it as being long or short, this or that colour. Nor was the answer empty space because empty space can't speak. And then he would say, and it's not the Buddha because you have not awakened yet to your Buddha na nature. And he'd say it's not the master of the body, the source of consciousness, or any other designation. All of which, of course, are words. They're descriptions of something. They're not the actual experience of it. 
So setting aside all these concepts, one is left with the question, what is this? Or what is Mum? And we ask it because we don't know. Sometimes people will come to me and, and say how, how stymied they feel and, and ask, what am I doing wrong that I feel this way? But nothing. Feeling stymied, getting to that point of, of being at a loss is essential in koan work. It's not pleasant, it's not comfortable, but it's absolutely necessary We've got to get beyond um, speculating, standing back and examining. Rather, um, where our task is to is to join completely with the question. Martin Batchelor says we're trying to become one with the question. The most important part of the question is not the meaning of the words themselves but the question mark. We are asking unconditionally, what is this? Without looking for an answer, without expecting an answer. And this is true, even though at the same time we want an answer. We are questioning for questioning's own sake. This is a practice of questioning, not of answering. We're trying to develop a sensation of openness, of wonderment. As we throw out the question, what is this? We are opening ourselves to the moment. There is no place we can rest. We are letting go of our need for knowledge and security and our body and mind themselves become a question. She uses a word here that's... that's um, very helpful in understanding the whole of, whole of spiritual practice really. She says, we're asking unconditionally. We actually have to love the koan. And that love has to be unconditional love. And of course in love there's the sense of longing and wanting to, to join with and that is, that is essential, this desire to know who and what we are, but at the same time put no timetable on that, no conditions. This is um, a story from Rumi. Um, which, who of course, has come from the Sufi tradition, and it's very, it's very much along the same lines. The teaching in the in the Sufi tradition very much the same along the same lines as in koan work. There's um, in the Sufis use a metaphor of a sword or a broom of la, and this word la means no, just as the word mu means no or not. 
And this la is the first uh, word of the profession of faith in Islam. Um, la ilaha illallaha. Probably pr- not pronouncing that properly. But the meaning of this is there is no God save God. So the, the, the first word of this is la or no. And uh, they understand this as being like a sword. The la cuts off everything that is not God. Or else the other image they use is of a broom. The house must be cleaned by this broom so that the beloved alone can reside in it. And um, Rumi uh, tells a story in a uh, verse form of the lover and the beloved. And it's a well-known story. It's quoted in different versions. But it is um, a real illustration of this this process of of becoming unconditionally engaged with the practice, and there in that in that total involvement, um, being burnt up, no longer being there. Here's here's the verse. A man knocked at the door of his beloved. Who are you, trusted one? Thus asked the friend. He answered, I. The friend said, Go away. There is no place for people raw and crude here. What then could cook the raw and rescue him but separation's fire and exile's flame? The poor man went to travel a whole year and burned in separation from his friend. And he matured, was cooked and burnt, returned and carefully approached the friend's abode. He walked around it now in cautious fear, lest from his lips unfitting words appear. His friend called out, Who is at my door? The answer, You, dear, you are at the door, he said. Come in now that you are all I. There is no room in this house for two eyes. He says there is no room in this house for two eyes. He's really pointing to, well, the way we would see it in Zen is there's no room for dualistic thinking in our practice. Thinking in terms of subject and object. We, 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 must drop that whole way of dividing the world into subject and object or um, me and the koan. In this verse, Rumi talks about, about separations, fire and exile's flame. So much work is done on us when we can't find the answer the, the, the not knowing the, the frustration of not being able to resolve the koan is the fire in which we are cooked
you are giving yourself over entirely to the question. It's like diving into a pool. The whole body is engaged in the act and the whole body and mind are refreshed. You are trying to develop a sensation of questioning and an inquiry that brings about the sense of bewilderment you feel when you have lost something. You are going somewhere. You put your hand in your pocket to grab your car keys. They're not there. You check this corner and that corner of the pocket again and again and there's nothing. For a moment before you try to remember where you've left them, you're totally perplexed. You have no idea what might have happened. This is very similar to the sensation you are trying to develop in Zen questioning. She's talking here really about um, this developing this doubt sensation. There's a little bit from an, an encouragement talk by, by Philip Kaplow on this, which clarifies it further. What is this doubt sensation? It is a burning perplexity, a fundamental question that gives you no rest. For example, if all beings are inherently flawless and endowed with virtue and compassion, as the Buddha declared, why is there so much hatred and selfishness and violence and suffering everywhere? So many things that we hear here happening around the world could, could bring us back to this question. For all the efforts of all the um, people of goodwill all around the world, why is there so much selfishness, so much hatred. This basic question can be pondered whenever you find yourself free to do so, at home, at work, any time. But when you are sitting in formal zazen and using the body-mind in a more focused manner, questioning a koan like what is mu or an inquiry um, like who am I or strictly speaking what am I, is a way of bringing to keener intensity this same basic doubt. The koan assigned to you does not replace the underlying doubt sensation. It simply sharpens it by raising it to consciousness. The basic doubt sensation may be likened to a drill of which the bit is what is moved. This is, um, this is an important um, distinction that we all come to practice with questions about our lives, about, about life itself. And those questions drive us, and they're not, it's not that we give them up when we take up a koan, but rather that we pour them into our koan. They have, we have them there as the, as, the, as the driving force behind the koan, and the koan itself is like that point on the end of the drill, which we can use to bore into the mind and, and see into our nature. He continues, At first the, the, the moo may seem artificial and outside you, 
but as you become more deeply involved with it, it will grow into your own most urgent life question. For Mu is but another name for mind, this undefiled, all-embracing mind common to everyone. You may wonder why, if I already possess this pure mind as a birthright, don't I know it? We might well question that. The answer is because your defilements, your deluded notions about yourself and your relation to what you conceive as the world outside you obscure the light of this mind. To raise the doubt sensation which grinds away these impurities you must carry on your questioning at all times until the solution comes to you for only then can you see into your fundamental nature make real in yourself this mind and be reborn into a life that is truly alive. Remind yourself, Mu is my cushion, my mat, my body, and it is also what is not my cushion, what is not my mat, what is not my body. Mu seems to be a thing and a no-thing at the same time. Logically, this is a contradiction, so here too doubt arises. Or if you prefer, you may revert to the full koan, asking yourselves, why did Joshua answer Mu when asked, even a dog, does even a dog have the Buddha nature? Since the sutras say the Buddha nature is intrinsic to all existence, why then does Joshua respond in this contradictory manner? How do you dispel this doubt? When you reach the point where there's not even a hair's breadth separation between you and Mu, the answer will reveal itself and the contradiction will be resolved. For the question and the answer are not two. They only appear so to your dualistically ensnared mind, which discriminates self from not-self. This, this from that. And the whole point is... Um, to get beyond that discriminating mind. The mind that, that chops up the world into pieces. Chops up with what, what is actually one continuous reality. Martine Batchelor continues, Concentration and inquiry are brought together in this technique. Concentration is developed as you come back again and again to the words of the question, back to the present moment. The question is the anchor of your meditation, the fixed point. By cultivating concentration, you allow for a certain calmness and spaciousness to develop. The process of inquiry is vivid because you are not repeating the words like a mantra. The words themselves are not sacred, nor do they have a special resonance. They are just the diving board from which you dive into the pool of questioning. By repeatedly questioning with the energy and interest of someone who has just discovered she has lost something, you evoke a brightness in your whole being. This questioning gives you energy because there is no place to, to rest and it allows for more possibilities and less certainty. It is a kind of wonderment similar to a young child's when he discovers and marvels at the world around him. Very immediate, not lost in the future and the past. This practice is just being with the moment and looking deeply, asking, what is this? Or, what is Mu? And being open to this as it happens to be. 
It's, it's really a matter of becoming a, a kind of fool. Reconnecting with our beginner's mind, the mind that doesn't make assumptions. If you meditate in this way, your mind will become more flexible and you will start to see that actually you have more choices in your actions and behavior than you thought possible. The seeing will allow you to respond creatively to thoughts by knowing what you are thinking and realizing when you come into contact with a new thought. Normally a thought emerges so fast you're not even aware of its arising. You just think and act impulsively or habitually. When you meditate, sitting quietly, trying to focus on the question, what is this, you start to notice what takes you away from your focus. Generally, it is a thought of one kind or another. The meditation is not intended to stop you from thinking, but to help you discover what and how you think. This is another important point. Often people think that they should be not thinking at all. But rather the, the idea is to, to not let the thoughts bother us. You see a thought arise, note it and move on. There are different practical ways to meditate with this method. The easiest way is to ask the question in combination with the breath. You breathe in and as you breathe out, you ask, what is this? Or if you're working on mu, then what is mu? Or just mu? Question mark. Master Kusan used to suggest asking the question by making it like a circle. You start with what is this? And as soon as you end one question, you start another what is this? Another way is just to ask the question once and remain for a while with the sensation of questioning. As soon as it fades away, you ask it once more, staying with the pregnant sense of questioning until it dissipates again. You have to be very careful not to ask the question with too tight a mental focus. Usually it's recommended that you ask the question as if you were coming, it were coming from the belly or even the toes. You need to bring the energy down and not tighten it like a knot in the mind. If the question makes you feel agitated, speculative or confused, just come back to a simple and calming breath practice for a while before returning to the question. Keep in mind that you're not trying to force yourself to find an answer. You're giving yourself wholeheartedly to the act of questioning. The answer is in the questioning itself. The answer is the question. Another, another important point 
is that there's really there really isn't um, a wrong way to uh, practice with a koan because um, even though we might um, go off on tangents those tangents will be places where we can learn something and it's um, also notable that um, different teachers teach um, how to work on the koan differently for instance uh, we just heard Master Kusan who who, um, teaches students to work with the breath when working on a koan and that's certainly how I learned from my teacher and yet Master Shen Yin and his instructions um, um, instructs people not to connect the, the questioning with the breath in any way I think it is important not to, to force the breath when, when questioning koan um, this can lead to kind of imbalances, physical imbalances. But really, the the the, the most central thing to understand is um, that the point of working on the koan is to is to allow our sense of of questioning to um, develop often called the great doubt or the doubt mass and we're not talking here about scepticism but about this the sense of of uneasiness or, or or wonderment what is this reality that we live in what we're all sitting here in this endo right now listening to this talk what is it that hears the words What is it that sees colours? Tastes, flavours. Master Sheng Yin says this great doubt is a state of all-consuming questioning that is relentless, not settling for any solution other than the complete resolution of the Huado. Such resolution means liberation from the great matter of birth and death. Naturally, there are degrees of the doubt, from momentary feelings of a fleeting doubt sensation to a persistent undercurrent of the doubt in all of your daily activities, to a great doubt sensation where you feel your whole world has collapsed into the sense of intense wonderment. When the doubt reaches a crescendo, it becomes vast and self-sustaining. Under certain circumstances, this great doubt will explode. Your sense of self will suddenly vanish and enlightenment will occur. The Huado is a great tool 
and you must generate the doubt by investigating it. Um, it's not necessarily uh, um, um, something that you 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 finish with completely. As we we were talking about the the Korean tradition, where um, people will offer work on the same koan their whole lives. What is this or or mu? And uh, Martine Batchelor relates, uh, relates how her um, own teacher, Master Kusan, was said to have had three awakenings and uh, breakthroughs with, um, in his practice, but he continued to work on what is this. And a Western monk once asked him why he continued questioning. Um, surely he must have found the answer if he'd had these three awakenings. And Master Kusan Sinning told him um, that it didn't work that way, that as he meditated with the question, the practice developed and it slowly evolved. And, and then the monk, the, the, the Westerner, asked him, how did he do it now if it, was, if it had changed? How was it different from when he started? But Master Kusan wouldn't answer him. He, um, he said that, we have to find out, this monk had to find out for himself, that any descriptions he might give would um, uh, fill our minds with misconceptions. And this is the whole point of taking up the practice, is to find out for ourselves, to, to taste the truth directly, like like tasting water as the, as the Zen say go, go, says um, tasting water and knowing whether it's cold or hot Martin Batchelor finishes the most important part of the practice is for the question to remain alive and for your whole body and mind to become a question. In Zen they say that you have to ask of the pores of your skin and the marrow of your bones. From the very tips of our toes up to the top of our head. Actually even more so, even to, to allow the whole, the question to fill the whole universe. Just as we can sometimes experience the breath that way where suddenly it's not us who is breathing but, but um, we are being breathed We're inside the breath rather than having the breath inside us. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs> 